Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we're joined by Dylan, aka the Contemporary Conservationist, a wildlife biologist with a particular interest in amphibians and reptiles, so herpetology. So Dylan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So today's episode is obviously going to be focused around herpetology, um, amphibians and reptiles, as mentioned. So let's just kind of dive straight in there. So, Dylan, my friend, can you please introduce yourself to the podcast? Yeah. So, uh, like you said, my name is Dylan Jones. I'm a herpetologist who's really been, oh gosh, um, my interests have definitely changed constantly, um, always within the realm of herpetology, so scaly and slimy friends, I guess. But um, the questions I've been asking have always changed and led me to some very fun and exciting places. Okay, interesting. So you've always been interested in amphibians and reptiles, but within that world, your interests and your questions have changed. How have they changed throughout the time? Well, I mean, it's changed in, um, I guess, two fronts. Um, One is the kind of organisms that I've been interested in, as well as the questions that I'm asking about them. So when I first started out, I was really, really, really into snakes. Um, They were really cool to me. Always got into them more and more. But I guess the more I explored um, herpetology, I started to navigate more towards amphibians um, and then just started getting really interested into um, salamanders specifically. Um, And then when it comes to the questions, I've always been very ecology minded. Um, That's what most of my research has been about, just sort of how, how are species acting now and how are they acting in their environment with each other etc cetera, etc cetera. but as of the past i guess two years or so my focus has really kind of been on those deep evolution questions of why species are in a certain area why are entire groups of organisms getting into these crazy cool biogeographic realms yes biogeographical realms i I think it was you that mentioned that in a recent post and I was like, that sounds interesting. I Googled it. So biogeography is, is that more or less how the geography informs how particular animals evolve in a certain area based on like, you know, geographical reasons? Yeah. Yeah. So it can be how they evolve or also just their current distribution. So if there's a, usually mountains are what a lot of people focus on with biogeography just because they're super dynamic, cool systems. You can see how species evolve around the mountain, up and down the mountain. Um, and it's, it's just such a cool field to me. Okay. So let's go a bit macro. What inspired you to work in the space of herpetology? Yeah, it was kind of a, I guess kind of a gradual progression. Uh, my family owned a pet store, so I was always around animals at a young age. Um, but I actually really wasn't comfortable with the outdoors and with wildlife and animals in general until I was about um, 13 or 14. 
um, started working there and I started specifically working with the reptiles and amphibians we had. So it kind of, um, I guess, fostered a love. And then I could see just this incredible diversity through the pet trade. Um, it's, I guess it's a really, um, condensed version of seeing the world's reptiles and amphibians in one small spot. Um, nowadays, like my views have changed a little bit with the pet trade and this and that, but it still set me on a trajectory to get into reptiles and amphibians and study them in the wild. Since you mentioned the pet trade, how have your thoughts on that changed? Um, I think it changed a lot because I was, I mean, I was in it as a uh, distributor. I, I knew kind of the back end stuff a lot more than I think the average person saw. And it's, it's, it can definitely be done right. And I do think a lot of people do keep their animals correctly, do those certain things right. But where it, where it kind of loses me is, um, there's a lot of animals that are taken directly from the wild with no thought or care about the natural populations there. Um, and then there's the, there's the, I guess, in my world, there's the average pet owner, just someone who owns like a cat or a dog versus the very, science-minded pet owner and it's there's so much death in the pet trade and i don't think a lot of people realize that and so it kind of just skewed my views quite a bit yeah i think that's something that needs to be probably discussed more and brought to the public's attention because well i don't know too much about about it but i realize there are you know this dark side to it unfortunately and one thing I'm quite interested in at the moment is the the potential link between social media and exotic pets and how, you know, you have a lot of influencers that have photos with exotic animals, whether they be kind of reptiles or tigers or cheetahs, etc. And they attract so much attention on social media. And I kind of just see that as demand you're creating this demand for this product not through through like likes and attention on on instagram so that dynamic between those two things i'm quite interested in and i'm, I'm holding out for some like research on that so i can actually get some real data on that um but yeah it, it, it is interesting space it's something that we need to talk about a bit more i reckon um so there's in the amphibian and reptile world there's a lot of a lot of different species like a diverse range of species some big some small colorful pretty some potentially a bit scary looking to a lot of people what are some common misconceptions people have about certain reptiles and amphibians yeah i mean i think the biggest one that most people are scared of is that every snake is this venomous monster that's going to chase you and kill you essentially um and that's really just not true uh i always tell people that i go out looking for these venomous species these ones that could potentially really harm me and it's still sometimes really difficult to find them um and even then if you talk to anyone who's actually worked around them um in any capacity not just in a professional realm like me just someone who works out in nature and understands them Bites are so incredibly rare, at least in the developed world, um, and that our treatments are so good nowadays that you really shouldn't be scared. Um, I know Australia is a little bit different in terms of the ratio between venomous and non-venomous reptiles and well, snakes, um, but it's 
it's definitely a fear that's just way blown out of proportion. I mean, even in Australia here, we have this this reputation for having kind of all these uh, dangerous animals, and I guess we do. But um, I haven't had any, you know, encounters with any of any of these animals. So it's, you know, you have people that visit Australia and they're, they're petrified because of what they've seen on in, on movies and documentaries. And they're like, how many have you seen this week? I'm like, I haven't seen any since I've lived here, since, I've, since I was eight. So for like 20 years, I haven't seen one of them. I'm like, yeah. oh, really? I just thought they're like just everywhere down the street because that's what I saw in that documentary. No. <laughs> but then that raises another question about the media, kind of mm-hmm. how we paint these animals in the form of a video or a photo. Yeah. And, and these articles... You know, it's obviously going to attract more views if you can paint them in a way that's like they're a villain or they're the scary creature because people would be attracted to that. But then that's that's just dangerous because it's, um, it's, it's dangerous if people adopt that mentality. Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, even people who uh, are really big fans of snakes, I know I think rattlesnakes kind of get a bad rep with their photography because it's such a stereotypical pose to have them bit, uh, raised up in that S position, ready to strike you. Um, and that's the pictures that always garner the most views and likes because it's, it's shocking. It's, it's a dangerous animal that's ready to attack. Getting to some of the science stuff, what is a, an indicator species and why are they important? Yeah, so at a very base level, an indicator species is a species that can um, give you a readout about the health of the ecosystem that it is in. So if they're there, typically, that means the ecosystem's in pretty good shape. Okay, so if just their existence in the ecosystem means that it's doing okay? Typically, more or less, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How many indicator species are there? Is it limited just to kind of a few animals or is it is there quite a range of them in terms of species there's actually quite a few but um the indicator species that most people don't realize are the macro invertebrates that are usually in streams and ponds um so these are like little things that you can still see them but they're incredibly small um Usually when there's something like water pollution or um, just habitat degradation around a stream, for example, those little macro invertebrates are the first ones to go. And that has these cascading effects for everything else. So um, frogs are also a pretty good indicator species, depending on the species of frog, um, because their tadpole stage is tied to the water. Okay, so even the indicator species, there's certain indicator species will be affected before other indicator species. Yeah, yeah. And that would depend on kind of the specific impact on that ecosystem. So depending on kind of what is affecting the ecosystem, a certain indicator species will be affected before another one. Yeah, and it also sounds confusing. uh, (laughs) Yeah, it can be, but it also depends on the life history of the indicator species. Um, so like those, those invertebrates, again, they get affected really quickly because they breed fast. They have a lot of offspring, so they have more generations 
in a same amount of time compared to a frog or a bird. Um, but those other indicator species can give you, I guess, different indications. So the little invertebrates may tell you immediately that something's gone wrong, but the frogs, it may take a couple of years. Um, so you could tell pretty quickly, uh, something went wrong maybe in this month and we need to fix it. Great. But now if the frogs two years down the road are also gone, then you know there's something long term that's been affecting the system. Okay, so if you can see an indicator species that species that has been affected, what are the methods that you use to kind of extract why or how that species was uh, affected? Yeah, so the why is usually the it can either be the most obvious uh, answer out there, or it can be something very very hard to tell. So if you know that all of a sudden a dam was built upstream, you have a pretty good idea that that's is what's causing the decline of the ecosystem. But if it seems fine and you've monitored the system for years and then all of a sudden you have a decline, you don't know what's happening. Um, it could be something like the the uh, like agriculture somewhere upstream. Um, the runoff from pesticides and fertilizer is polluting the water table and you may be 50 miles away from that um, farm. So usually water testing is one of the quickest ways to figure out what's going on um, just because the water kind of forms the base for everything else if your water isn't good then your plants aren't growing and then etc 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 are there certain animal groups that um, have more indicator species than others yeah so when, when i think of the animal groups that are it's that are more affected it's it's the species that the how do i put this it's ones that have less barriers to, I guess, destructive um, elements in their habitat. So amphibians are a good example because they have this porous skin that just absorbs everything around them like a sponge almost. So if there's pollutants in the water, they can easily be affected. But compare that to a mammal or to a reptile, they have to drink the water, they have to uptake it intentionally and they have so many different water sources but if a frog just hops into a river he's absorbing that water immediately yeah okay well that makes that makes sense so if you view those amphibians as kind of like a, a sponge almost that you can kind of visualize why why that would be affected when with any kind of change to the atmosphere and the ecosystem okay so moving on to invasive species is another one that i'm quite interested in um can you explain what invasive species are and what impact they can have on an ecosystem? Yeah, so an invasive species is a species that is not native to an area and was introduced by some means. Typically, nowadays, it's been through humans, um, and they have a massive detriment to the environment. Uh, usually, these invasive species they can breed really rapidly. They're um, extremely generalist, meaning they can eat a wide variety of things, exist in a wide variety of habitats. And what they often do is they outcompete native species. I find that interesting. So an invasive species, a lot of the time, like how, do, how does that actually work? Why, why, what features does an invasive species have that allows them to kind of have more options in their diet? Um, well, it kind of does go back to, 
Uh, I guess all species exist on a gradient between ultra specialists and ultra generalists. So like an ultra specialist would be like a koala or a, or a giant panda. You know, they only eat eucalyptus, they only eat one type of plant. So they're really, really good at being in one area and eating that. But a generalist, um, they can adapt to a wide variety of changes. So often they exist in areas or in a niche where the food isn't constant or the type of food isn't constant. So if you think about um, most um, most birds that eat seeds, the seeds aren't always there year round. So they need to be able to eat seeds that are different throughout the year or even change to something else like leaves or berries. Um, and that's where you get a generalist coming in. Usually the generalists are also carnivores, um, so they don't really care what they're eating as long as it's another animal. Um, so that's usually where it factors in. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, in, in a world that's constantly changing a lot of the time due to man-made reasons, but would you say with that, that the generalist species would be better off versus the specialist species just because they're um, more able to adapt to the changing environment? Yeah, and that's actually why the invasives are so adaptive and they can exist in spite of um, humans coming in and homogenizing the landscape. Um, they're pretty much just not picky about things. Um, they can usually withstand more pollution. They can usually eat more. They can eat a wider variety of things. Um, so overall, generalists are better. That's why um, you'll actually see things like coyotes who aren't really they're not really specific as to what they're eating. And yes, they're in their native range, but they've had these population explosions because they can essentially survive with humans very easily. How did the invasive species get there in the first place? Um, a lot of times, at least in modern history, it has been through humans. So it can happen a variety of ways, either accidental um, introductions, like just listing off some of the big ones, um, zebra mussels, are a, are a big, big issue, and they usually attach onto the undersides of boats. So they get into an area, they fall off, and then now they have a new area to get into. Um, but some species like bullfrogs, for example, one, one reason they've probably been introduced to so many different regions is that they were raised in an area for the meat trade. They wanted to raise them up, grill uh, the frog legs, essentially. But then when the farm didn't work out, um, they just release them all into the wild, or if there's a storm and it breaks down the barrier, so now they're a big population of them gets in the wild. Um, that's been one pretty good postulation about why they're in these new areas. So just so I can wrap my head around invasive species, um, so a common feature is the fact that they are generalists. Can you have an invasive species that is a specialist? That wouldn't really work, would it? You, you can, um, and. Hmm. I'm trying to think of one and nothing is coming to mind, but I know there have been examples of specialists, but they're not they're not extreme specialists like the panda, where it's one species that they predate on. It's they may just only uh, eat a single type of berry or something that looks really similar. So when they get into an area that might have an abundance of something that is very similar to what they eat in their native habitat, then it can cause lots of issues. Mm. So they do exist, but it's just less likely. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Interesting. I, yeah. I never 
kind of made that that link, but it makes total sense. You mentioned earlier in the podcast about salamanders, and I've spoken to you before, and that's your favorite kind of animal. So, can we we ex- expand a bit on on why you like salamanders and why you find them interesting? Yeah, so salamanders for me are really interesting just because they have this really crazy diversity within their group. Um, salamanders are, some of them live in caves and are completely blind. Some of them live in the water their entire lives. Some of them have these really crazy um, mating dances that they do. And some of them have these insane um, features about their basic biology, like the plethodon salamanders. That entire group is completely lungless. They respire through their skin. Um, so it's just these, they all have these crazy, crazy traits that I just absolutely love. And I know a lot of people that are familiar with axolotls, because they're, they're in a lot of, a lot of people may have them as, as pets. What's the, what's the difference between an axolotl and a salamander? Um, really, really nothing. Um, so they are a type of salamander. Okay. And what's cool about them is that they're in this genus, um, Invistima. So they're really, really, really similar to the tiger salamanders. But the oxalotls specifically, they've retained their juvenile characteristics. If you look at, uh, I guess, the life history of, uh, of the mole salamanders, like the Invistimids, um, they have this larval stage in the water where they have the gills. They um, have kind of like that paddle-shaped tail. Um, and then eventually the pond dries up or they migrate on the land, they lose the gills, and then they're terrestrial for the rest of their lives. But the oxalotls, they never make that terrestrial step. Hmm, that's so interesting how there's so many different. So, so salamander is the group, and then within that group is you have axolotls, and then a, a range of other different species, and each one is has their own set of unique characteristics and and whatnot. Why? What? So why did why did they evolve to be so so different? Well, it's that's always the hard question, um, and I think it's the why comes from a lot of different sources. Um, salamanders are decently good at occupying many different niches as long as there's water for them. Um, so, like my favorite genus, the Bolitoglossids, they've they have this unique niche where they're semi-arboreal, meaning they do climb trees quite a bit. And they have this really unique foot that is kind of looks like a suction cup, so they can suction onto trees and kind of climb up them and hold on to um, leaves and whatnot. And so they've occupied a niche that is, I guess, only a few meters off the ground where there's a lot of insects and not a whole lot of predators for them. Mm-hmm. Um, versus other species that live entirely in small streams or only in a single water table. Mm-hmm. or um, up a mountain gradient, they can only exist at the peaks. So they're, they're really good at occupying just a whole lot of different areas, and their genetics are also kind of, uh, I guess, loose is a good way to put it. They, like the Appalachian Mountain group, um, there's a whole lot of different salamanders there, and they all have these crazy different chromosome numbers. Um, they make a lot of hybrids, which leads into this crazy speciation and it's just, it's an insane group overall. Because you can get some big ones, can't you? You get the Chinese and the Japanese salamander and they're, they're huge, right? Like how, how big do they get? 
Oh gosh, I don't know the exact stats, and I think they just found like over a bigger meter. one. Yeah, yeah, they're they're massive. They're massive. And some salamanders can live in the water and outside of the water. What are the physical characteristics that they have that enable them to do so? Yeah, so the ones that are in the water typically still have gills of some type. Um, so they're pretty, they're just adapted for living in the water. They can breathe through that. But the ones on land, um, some of them do get somewhat of a mucous membrane um, that's really similar to frogs where it can kind of harden if it gets too um, dry, but they still need moisture in the air. So you don't really have the same amount uh, like desert species as you do with the frogs, where you have a whole lot of toads that have these, this really rough skin that lets them hold in water. The salamanders are still very dependent on there being moisture in the air around them if they're on land. Even that in itself is just a crazy thought, just having the ability to live in the water and, and outside of that as well. With the work that you do and, and you know, all the work that what biologists do, wildlife biologists, they try and they do research and they try and communicate that research to the world. So how how important is education in wildlife biology and conservation? I think it's extremely vital. Um, I've always said that research is kind of a a triangle of learning, doing, and teaching. So before you do anything, you have to learn about it and you kind of get interested in it, or you learn a methodology and you want to apply it. So that's when you do. You do the science, you do the research, you do whatever you need to do. But then where I think a lot of people do kind of falter is that they don't teach, they don't give back. Um, and to me, that's one of the most rewarding things about doing research is talking to someone about something that I've discovered or I've found out. Um, and I think it, it really, it not only just increases the knowledge pool that we have in the world where more people can know more things, but it also serves as a source to inspire and get people involved in biology, science, or research in so many different ways than just what you do. Would you say from a general public point of view that the communication of science is kind of like the bottleneck in that triangle that you referred to before? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, you see nowadays that science literacy has gone down quite a bit. I think some of that is due in part to science itself getting more complex, so there's a greater barrier to get into it. But I also think that a lot of the time, a lot of researchers and scientists just spend time talking to other researchers and scientists. And when you speak in that world, it is a completely different language. Um, you're speaking in this really technical jargon that doesn't make sense to the layperson. But getting that layperson involved in what you do, whether it's actually coming along with you and helping with the research or just liking a picture and asking a question, um, I think it's so important. So you said just then liking a picture, which I guess you're referring to social media. So how important is social media with regards to science and conservation communication? I think social media is probably the most important thing nowadays. Um, we do live in a very social media saturated world. And because of that, you, you have this opportunity to actually talk to a lot of people and also meet a lot of people. So it's, I, I think where it used to be where TV was really the only media that you can get 
this science through. And I mean, I remember growing up on Animal Planet and Discovery Channel and um, all of that. So that's, you know, what kind of inspired me, got me into wildlife, got me into these things. And doing that on social media is the same thing as going on TV to me and talking and showing your world. Yeah, that's that's one thing I've been impressed with you around is how active you are on, on social media and how innovative you are with regards to trying to deliver a message. Um, we need to package our conservation content and message in a way that's appropriate to 2019. Yeah, and, and I think that's what you're trying to do and, and hence your, your handle, Contemporary Conservationist, I guess. Your theory as well is trying to modernize um, your approach to tackling conservation, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, I made my social media presence, I guess, very, very intentionally. And I guess the goal behind Contemporary Conservationist and um, my, my ethos with that is that conservation itself, I don't think has changed at its core principle of conserving the world and trying to save species, et cetera, et cetera. But the way we go about things has changed massively in 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and looking at social media, I, I like to think that the audience from when I was a kid was honestly the same. It's people who don't, who might just be interested in animals, but don't have an outlet. The only thing that's really changed is now the platform. It's like you said, not TV shows. It's two minute video clips. It's a 1500 word, uh, character count limit. Um, it's how we deliver things has to change. Okay. What are your thoughts on handling wildlife? And what do you consider to be acceptable and unacceptable? That's a good question because it, there is such a fine line between handling wildlife um, and harassing wildlife. And it's so easy. So I know in, like in my position, my job, what I do, I do get to handle wildlife that normally no one else would. Um, like today, I posted a picture of us holding a bird and putting it into a photographer's grip to really show it off. And that's something that most people will never be able to do. You have to set up these nets and check them every 15 minutes and extract them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, think, I think for me, though, where I kind of draw the line for the average person, um, I have no problems with anyone really handling reptiles and amphibians. Um, they're usually pretty hardy in terms of handling. It's, it's when they handle them either too much where the animal is way visibly stressed and definitely should be left go um, or when they're handling something that has the very real potential to harm them and they do not take proper safety precautions it's like free handling a venomous snake that to me is just not worth it especially when we live in an age of snake hooks snake tongs um, there are so many ways to show someone how to handle a venomous snake properly and then you're still picking them up with your bare hands and saying, dangling in front of a camera for Instagram. And to me, that's just not worth it. It's if you get bit, you're another idiot who was handling a venomous snake without proper safety. And I think it just shows that you, it just gives like an unhealthy uh, image for anyone new who's trying to get into herping or really wants to know how to handle a snake. Um, that you can just go up and pick up a rattlesnake by their tail and dangle it in front of your face. Like that's, to me, that's not a healthy image to portray. So the two variables, uh, in your opinion, are the 
whether the animal is impacted in a negative way by that interaction. And the second variable is um, how dangerous it is to the, that the person actually doing it involved. Yeah. So what are some, what are some, some scenarios where, like, why would you need to handle it in the first place coming from someone who has no idea what you do? Yeah. So in my opinion, there's no reason to handle a venomous snake unless you're doing research with it or you need to move it for some reason. Like it's in the middle of a busy park and it could bite someone or bite a dog or something like that. Like that's an absolutely real reason to handle it um, and move it. And yeah, you can take a quick picture. That's totally fine. Um, and then post about it. I think, I think that's okay if you're trained and know how to do it and you're using proper safety, like uh, just a simple snake hook makes a huge difference in terms of what you're showcasing. Um, most snakes, though, I mean, I definitely photograph a lot of stuff, even when I'm not doing research. If I'm just going out looking for a snake or a frog for fun, I definitely photograph mm -hmm. it. Um, and I do have pictures of venomous snakes, but I'm not handling them in any of my pictures. I do pose them or put them on a rock or move them somewhere photographically pleasing um, with snake hooks or a, you know, a branch if I'm really gung-ho about it but I never handle them. I, there's no chance for me to get bit while taking a picture. Are there little things that we can do? Like when I say we, I mean, you know, biologists like yourself that may take these photos. Are there little small things that we can do, like including the snake hook in the photo or including like wearing a shirt that says, I'm a, you know, I belong to this organization. Are there small things that we can do within that photo or video so that when someone consumes it, they instantly know that this is not just an everyday person. This is someone that's trained and knows what they're doing. Yeah, I think there, there definitely is proper ways of doing it. And I think a lot of people do have um, their organization on a baseball cap or something when they're handling these or organisms or they're using specialized tools. Um, I know several people that I've seen who are biologists and when they post a picture of a venomous snake, oftentimes they have it tubed. So it's inside of the head is inside of the tube and they're holding it. And that's a standard method for handling a venomous snake for research purposes. So it, it is using those tools in the picture, but I think even if you're, even if you expect people not to read the caption, I think it's important to put that there. Um, especially we live in an age of Instagram reposting, uh, reposting accounts that just, they're bots that come through and repost everything. Um, and they usually just copy and paste your caption. So I, I think it's important to do that. I know a lot of people who work with, um, threatened species often put in their captions somewhere handled with um, proper permits and underneath proper regulations. So they're kind of signaling that you shouldn't do this. But I, I do wonder that same question of if you see someone handling a, uh, a massive alligator snapping turtle and it's this amazing creature and it's super cool, but it's illegal to handle without permits, is the average Instagram user going to know that? Or are they just going to say, oh, that's cool. I want to hold that too. Crazy well. Okay, so what are some of the major threats to reptiles and amphibians? Yeah, it's um, I think some of the major threats, and this is stuff that affects most species worldwide, is just habitat loss and degradation. So yeah, most species, their habitat is being um, either lost directly by 
usually human um, interference. Like we're building a house, so then we gotta you know mow down the forest. Um, but then there's also degradation, which just means that the habitat is going down in quality. Um, a lot of people don't realize, but just building a single road through a forest can't have massive impacts for a lot of the species that are there. Um, it also includes water pollution upstream. It includes things like climate change. It, it's, it's a lot of different factors that are really affecting wildlife in a big way. So what are your goals and dreams as a contemporary conservationist? I think it's overall just bringing more awareness and with that awareness, respect for kind of the natural world we live in. Um, I, I don't, I don't believe that most people are malicious when it comes to conservation and wildlife. Um, they're just unaware of what they're doing does have consequences. Um, it's, it's something that's really hard to imagine that just by me consuming a single product, I could have an effect on something in the oceans in the Philippines. It's, it's just, um, that's really difficult. And I do think that a lot of people nowadays don't get to really see wildlife in this really up close and personal way. Um, they're a little bit disconnected from it. And I kind of want to, I don't know, bring that into everyday, the everyday lives of people. Okay. Have you got any um, strategies on how you think you will achieve that? Yeah. I mean, social media is a big part of that. And I think, at least for me, it's, it's kind of posting pictures of these animals in a way that most people never get to see them. A lot of people only see a snake um, slithering away from them very quickly or at a zoo. Um, there's a barrier and it's not really that exciting to see the snake coiled up, honestly, at the zoo. Um, cause it's just sitting there. But when, when I try to post a picture, I try to show it in its natural habitat. Um, I, I do a lot of little things that really kind of give some personality to the animal. But then in my captions, I try really, really hard to talk about what is so interesting about them. Mm -hmm. It could just be how I like to find them, or it could be the, like the, the search that it took me. Like I had to climb up a whole mountain just to find this one, or it could be the entire evolutionary history of a single trait on this animal. There's just so many fascinating things about every creature on this earth. And I kind of want to show that more and more. Yeah. I think your captions are spot on. I think, um, the way that you write your captions is something that I wish I could, I'm not good at writing. <laughs> So I'm just like, here's some facts. Like, that's just how I work. I'm not very creative in that sense. But okay, so you, that that connection, I think, is really critical because I, I agree. I think there is a, a disconnect between us and, and the animal kingdom. Um, so the way that you're trying to address that is is through creating these kind of these stories and these moments on on social media uh in a way that kind of engages the audience so through photos and videos yeah mainly through photos and videos um and i kind of i guess my philosophy with most anything i do is storytelling with the focus on the animal the environment and the conservation aspects or the biology aspects or whatever is interesting me that day um, um it's it's all storytelling at the end of the day yeah definitely everything is storytelling so what are your thoughts on augmented reality? Oh, yeah, that's a uh, 
that's a tricky one for me because it's it's I I am worried. I, I think it has like this amazing potential to bring people to areas that they really could never go to. Yeah. Um, I was actually at a conference where they had a whole virtual reality section and they tried to bring people into it. And it was amazing to see it in this really, really immersive experience. But I'm, I'm worried that if we follow down that path, then it's not going to be an addition to what we could do. It's going to be a replacement. Um, I've, I've heard talk of some universities removing field trips and just doing VR because it's much cheaper, much safer, logistically sound, whatever. But even then, if you go to VR, you still can't touch the animal. You still can't experience the smells. You can't experience the heat of the sun coming down on you as you're looking for that last lizard. And I guess I'm worried that it could go in this opposite way. And I also think that you don't have to go to these exotic locales to see amazing wildlife and find amazing experiences. Um, oftentimes, some of the best herping adventures I've had have been in my own backyard, no matter where I've been at. One thing that I think will materialize in the future, this is a prediction of mine. So I think that biologists, wildlife bi biologists, scientists, in the future, I think they will also be um, tour guides and run their own tours. Yeah, and it's it's something... So this last research station I was at was kind of doing that, actually. Um, they were uh, eco-lodge and research station in one, and they funded their research through guests and patrons coming through. Um, and it actually can work really well because they organize these tours. They have a... Um, they have a jungle guide who is also like their general handyman who people pay him to do ethnobotanical walks or go herping at night. Um, and it's, it's, it was amazing to take, um, we had a lot of high school students come through while I was there. And it was amazing to take them out and show them this experience. I had a few of them help me track turtles with radio telemetry or do stream sampling surveys for um, little tadpoles. And that experience is something that it genuinely helped our research and genuinely was extremely beneficial for us and for them as well. I love that symbiotic relationship. Um, we're nearing the end. Uh, we've gone over time again, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we go to the last question. So the last question is a question that you leave to the listeners, the conservation tribe. Um, but how can people reach out to you? Um, you can absolutely find me on Instagram. Um, I'm there. I'm usually on there pretty often. Um, there's also the um, there's this new social media app called Mammals that I've been a part of since more or less the when it first launched that I've been really enjoying and I'm on there a lot with heavy discussion based things. And um, I'm recently getting into YouTube, so that's a whole other thing. Um, yeah, <laughs> so you can find me on any social media with the tag contemporary conservationist on all of them so mm -hmm. perfect okay so the last question what question or thought do you want to leave the listeners of the conservation tribe so the question i want to ask and that i'm i really want everyone to think about is that what what about the natural world amazes you and how can you share that with someone else because that's the most rewarding thing to me about going to some place and finding something new is how can I explain this to someone else? 
to where they get the same fascination, wonder, and excitement that I feel. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.